Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery, and I'm excited to have Joseph Funk, who's the CEO of Ovaro, a tech sales career accelerator and of guide a sales enablement platform purpose built to provide sales teams the information they need when they need it. A graduate of the University of Waterloo's computer engineering program, Joseph is a repeat founder and a CEO, and with multiple successful exits, and speaks frequently on the topic of sales leadership, diversity, and corporate social responsibility. He's an active early stage investor who ensures that the majority of his investments are into women-led companies. Joseph also sits on the boards of Communitech, the Golden Triangle Angel Network, and the Kitchen Waterloo Symphony. Welcome to the show, Joseph. Thanks for having me. Uh, I love these conversations. This is going to be so much fun. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I, I think you have a very interesting journey. Uh, you've been into a couple of startups, but how did you get your start into, into, into this crazy world of startups? Oh, my goodness. Uh, really, it was during university for me. Uh, it's funny, like of all the times, I ended up getting sick during the tail end of my first year university. Uh, I was stuck in the hospital for a little while and started working on a couple of online uh, projects, open source projects. Met my co-founder working on them and recognized, hey, you know what? I don't have to wait till I graduate to launch my first business. You know, we can actually do that. So a bit of idle time, meeting the right people and the right technology and haven't looked back since. Awesome. And you, you know, what was the first company uh, you did? So the first company we built a, uh, an app that let you launch uh, discussion forums on your website. It was called Simple Machines Forum. Uh, it was an open source solution. Uh, great success from a user adoption. Hundreds of thousands of sites using the software. The development community had dozens of people. I think we topped out at 20 different countries. Um, but we didn't hit the mark quite right. Uh, when we went to turn on all of the monetization and the commercial side of the business, the community was so focused on open source and free that the the culture rejected any of the monetization schemes. So we ended up converting it into a not-for-profit. Uh, so we open sourced it, put all the IP into a not-for-profit and kind of sent it off on its own. Got it. And uh, you, know, you know, before uh, you went on to found Kite and Ovaru, uh, you were the founder of Tribe HR, which was, I believe, a, a HR application that helped people optimize uh, processes in a, in a business. How, how did you go about, you know, founding that business? Uh, that was a, a lot of fun. We, as we were ideating around Tribe HR, uh, we recognized that having run a couple of businesses, the people processes were some of the most painful. Yeah, really silly things like you'd use your bookkeeping software and someone would say, how much vacation time do I have left? And and I'd look it up and answer, you have $180, like whatever that means. But <laughs> that's what the, the bookkeeping software would say. So we, we started with the idea of, can we build an HR platform that feels less like a secret government file about you and more like your like your social media profile you choose what you share you can comment you can engage and we had great success with that it was the first social hr platform and uh it took off like crazy and we ended up selling that to netsuite and then i stayed on and built their mid-market hr strategy for several years so had a had a good time with that interesting and uh do we also going to raise funding for uh, tribe we did, yes. We had the good fortune of working with, uh, on the Canadian side of the border, Relay Ventures, and, and on the U.S. side, uh, Matrix Partners. So we got to work with David Scock, 
learned from some of the best. It was such an incredible ride and it's very, very fortunate to have David on our board because that was an amazing learning experience. Very interesting. I think uh, Matrix is, is one of the more popular VC funds uh, in India and also around the world. And, uh, you know, how, how's the experience, you know, sending to NetSuite and, uh, you know, uh, what, what were some of the important decisions which made you, you know, look at selling the business? So at a high level, selling the business to NetSuite was a great experience. You know, so, I mean, you sometimes hear founders say, hey, they sold a business, it didn't work out how they expected, and they left. Uh, I stayed with NetSuite for three and a half years. You know, did some great work in building the office, the team, the culture. We had uh, incredible successes. Um, in many ways, NetSuite was the kind of company we were growing up to be. So our team had to mature very quickly. Um, you asked a great question there about the decision process, though. Wow, that was not easy. We were we're in the middle of raising a, a really nice Series A. Um, so again, we we're venture backed. We're looking at a term sheet. If I remember right, I think it was ten million dollars on a twenty-eight million pre. Uh, so pretty solid. Um, I mean, pretty solid for for today's terms. Uh, that was back in twenty thirteen. Uh, so really great term sheet. And uh, you know, Netsuite came and said, "Hey, you know, we haven't found anybody else that we we like as much, or whose software is as good, or his team is engaged." And, you know, we'd really like to, to make this more serious partnership and deciding between raising money and continuing to run the business independently or uh, selling the company and losing control of that vision. Uh, that was, that was a really tough decision. We struggled with that for a long time. And, you know, how, how, how old were you when you went on to sell Tribe as well? So we sold Tribe in 2013. So I was, uh, cause that means I was what 33 at the time. Yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, how, how did the, you know, the sale change uh, you? Did you, did you go on a, you know, on a sabbatical for some time uh, to, pro to you know, process your thoughts and look at your next venture? No, no. So no sabbatical because we, we sold the company and we all stayed on. So okay. we just kept working. Day-to-day um, -day life changed a little bit in that, um, like the sale was a life-changing sale for, you know, several of the team members. Uh, and that was amazing. That was really, really good. I mean, I remember when, when my wife and I could each go to our parents and pay off their mortgages and, you know, that kind of stuff. That, no. that was really monumental. Uh, the work didn't change too much. Uh, over the course of the three years, though, having such an amazing leadership and executive team around me, it meant that I didn't have to burn the candle on both ends all the time. And I could carve out some mind share to, you know, do some some personal work. So did some work on some of my music. Worked towards my pilot's license. Tried to learn how to play golf. That was a terrible abject failure. Um, and got really serious about the next problem that I wanted to solve. And taking a nice long time to do that, I think, was the right choice. And you know, I think uh, you know sometimes the the city can be can be interesting, especially you know if it is a life changing experience and. Uh, you know, after you, uh, you you know you sold the company, you went on to uh, or found Kite, which is a sales enablement platform, uh, along with your along with your sister. So you know, how how did that happen? Yeah. So, I mean, the the how did it happen was was pretty fun because uh, my sister Donna joined us as one of the first employees at Tribe. So oh, okay. uh, she had graduated from uh, an archaeology program. Uh, she'd worked with a very complex not-for-profit, a fundraising organization. Um, and uh, her interview was probably the worst interview 
anybody has ever had because I really wanted to make sure that we weren't biased. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was terrible. I was asking her these miserably tough questions and my co-founders were looking at me going, why, why are you giving her such a hard time? Like, just, just hire her. Uh, but she really, really proved uh, that if you bring that type of scientific rigor to the way you work with your customers, you can tease out stories, find really compelling patterns, and turn that into really compelling product strategies. And so she built out our customer success, our product management, the whole operations on the customer side of it. And so when we went to found Kite, we said, hey, this is what we want to do. There was no one who I knew who could better kind of actualize that customer experience, bring that systems thinking, and uh, you know, really fit into that trust dynamic. So, so three of the four founders of Kite were me, uh, my sister, uh, so known her all her life and most of mine, uh, and then Derek, our head of engineering, who I've known since early high school days. We've worked together at just about every company uh, we've we've worked at or founded, uh, and so that trust is super super helpful at building a company because you're going to move quickly, you're going to break things, and if you can feel safe in the relationships, it's easier to to iterate on the business. Very interesting, and uh, uh, you know, I, I believe Kite was a was a SaaS platform, and you know, uh, what what was the pricing of the platform, and who who the customers that you trying to target? Yeah, so Kite as a a sales enablement platform that makes it really easy for you to to create, upload, remix your playbook. Um, and I should I should clarify that a lot of people think about their playbook, their sales playbook as. Uh, you know, almost like here's a textbook and you drop it on someone's desk. You say, memorize that, go sell. Yeah, that's not helpful. Um, we reimagined playbooks as sets of cheat sheets that you could remix. And if you updated your cheat sheet, it would update mine. And we'd always have the latest pricing, competitive information, stories, super, super helpful. Um, it's, it's always been a freemium product. So we always had a free edition. Uh, and then we had a, a professional and an enterprise edition. Uh, and it's kind of your classic, you know, 20 bucks, 40 bucks a user a month. Uh, most of our customers were uh, mid-market software companies. So 30 people, 100 people, 300 people, rapidly growing sales team. And they would use Kite to roll out and support content for their sales team, uh, enable them while they were rolling out process changes. Uh, and uh, especially if they had an outside sales force, like uh, reseller channels or partners, uh, that's where it became really powerful because then you could remix your playbooks and ensure your partners always had the latest information. Um, but that's how it was founded. And uh, as we were talking about before the show started, uh, we recently made the decision to completely uh, turn the entire platform into a free platform. So not just a freemium, but a free platform. Uh, and it was actually the the usage, the patterns, the data inside the platform that helped us create the Uvaro curriculum. Uh, and so we continue to use it to support the Uvaro program. Uh, there's about 3,000 organizations across North America who use Kite. and. It's uh, amazing seeing tens of thousands of sales professionals use it to speed up their sales every day. And it's a great, great proving ground uh, for our students as well, because then they get to use the technology and we don't feel compromised if they get the free tech and others don't. Now it's just simple. Everybody gets it. Yeah, interesting. And uh, you know, since you made it a free platform, uh, are there other ways you, 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 you're creating revenues for Kite or is it going to be a free platform just to support a battle? 100% free in support of Uvaro. Um, one of the big things that we see is 
if you're building a sales team and you need to make them successful and you need to roll out a playbook, uh, you also need to hire people. Uh, and so it also drives employer demand for Uvaro, uh, and that keeps the ecosystem running. Uh, and so net-net, it's easier to drive the adoption and the usage for a free platform. Uh, and then we can build a healthy ecosystem on the Uvaro side, because our, our vision is to help more people launch successful sales careers, and, and that's easier when the technology is free. Yeah, interesting. And, um, you know, while you were building Kite, uh, you know, uh, did the idea of Uvaro came then, or did you plan to move out of Kite and you know, look at some, you know, building this company. Yeah, the need for Uvaro became really evident with Kite. So um, we launched uh, Kite publicly in Q1 of 2019. Uh, so, you know, running, that's going really well. But by Q4, we saw something really interesting. Our best customers, the ones who are buying the most software, growing the fastest, investing the most, were not just buying our software, they were also investing in training. So they were, you know, maybe they would buy $10,000, $20,000, $50,000 of software, but then they would also turn around and spend $100,000, $200,000, half a million on training in their organization. And that's what helped us see that really solving sales productivity is not just about the tools. It's also about the knowledge, the skills, the aptitudes. Uh, and it was with those first customers that we ran the first pilot for Uvaro. You know, they're happy investing in training for their teams, and that's great. But when you run complex training, you, you can't train one or two people at a time. You know, you end up doing these annual cycles. And so we went to them and said, hey, if we could consolidate some of that demand, you know, as you're bringing new people on, or even before they enter your company, we could help, you know, deliver some of that same training and everything we've seen on the playbook side of things. Would that be helpful? And they all said, yes. We did our first pilot. We opened it up publicly in January of 2020, and then a global pandemic hit, and we realized, oh my goodness, everybody needs this. Uh, and so it was, uh, the COVID pandemic is not fortunate by any means, but our you know lucky thing uh, worked out for launching the Uvaro platform. Very interesting. And um, you know, what is the what is the business model behind Uvaro? Is it something very similar to Lambda School? Uh, Very similar, yeah. Mm. Um, so our students can choose to pay for tuition upfront, so they can pay after they land a role as uh, over an income share agreement. Um, the things that are a little bit different is the uh, the Uvaro program is it's not like a twelve or an eighteen month program; it's a three month program. Uh, so the ISA is, of course, you know less than the, the Lambda School ISA, uh, and we also have, I think, more robust uh, business services. So we do a lot of matchmaking for employers, like a lot of boot camps, but we also run a sales residency program. So especially when a founder is, you know, switching from founder-led sales to, to kind of more scalable team sales, we'll partner with them to put our grads at the company in a rotational basis uh, and have our dedicated sales managers help get them stood up. So that acts as a soft on-ramp for our grads, helps them land great jobs, but also helps more startups build their initial sales team. And if we can help them do that, they'll hire more salespeople and they'll come back to get more of our grads. Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions, and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. 
Correct. And uh, are you solving the problem only for Canadian uh, tech market, or uh, is it across? You know, can I, can anyone apply into your course? Yeah. So uh, we primarily focus in North America because of the timing of our classes. Um, our earliest class starts at 9 a.m. Eastern uh, and you know wraps up at 6 p.m. Uh, Pacific. So North America is our bread and butter. Uh, we have students everything from uh, you know Miami, Florida to Calgary uh, to you know Vancouver to San Diego. We do have a few students internationally. Uh, uh, recall one student was uh, in doing a flipped shift, so joining our classes even though he was in South Korea. No. But by and large, it's North America. Correct. And you know how much time would people need to spend uh, in the class, and are the classes remote? So the classes are all online. It's always been online, so yeah, it's a very much a remote-first curriculum. Uh, but it's two hours a day, five days a week for twelve weeks. So a lot of practice time, a lot of hands-on time. Um, this isn't a uh, what is it? Sage on a stage, kind of just talking to the mic. There's a lot of workshopping, a lot of practice. Um, one of our students, I think, said it best. He's like, uh, "You can't learn a piano. You can't learn how to play the piano just by watching some YouTube videos. You actually have to play and." you know, build the muscles. We do the same thing in the class. Yeah, there's a lot of reading, a lot of videos, but the class time is all about exercise and practice. Interesting. And, um, you, you know, who, who's, who's your uh, audience? Are there people who uh, are already into tech sales or, or you know, uh, are there people who, who have sales experience, but they're working in different industries? Yeah, we, we really have two groups. We have uh, a number of students who come in right out of school. They, they say, hey, you know, I finished a, an undergraduate uh, program or, or maybe even a master's program, and I really want to optimize my career path. It's like, hey, I've, I've got this great knowledge, but now I want to be laser focused and just, you know, maximize my chance of success. Uh, and we do have a number of students who come in, you know, from that perspective. Uh, and it's fantastic because you add on three months to the program and the, the accelerated path in sales is incredible for them. Uh, the other group that we have are typically people who are mid-career. Maybe they've had two or three jobs, and because of a situation, they want to switch industries. Maybe they're a newcomer to the country, or their industry has had a lot of layoffs, or a global pandemic sent everybody home. So we've had bartenders, people who sold travel and tourism, people who sold Harley-Davidson motorcycles. Uh, they have great experience. They know how to relate to people, how to talk to people, but maybe they don't know the jargon. Like they don't know that we say SaaS, we don't say SaaS, they don't know what ARR is, or they don't know the difference between uh, HubSpot and SalesLoft. And these are all teachable things. There's no reason that they can't get a role or get an interview, other than the fact that a lot of tech hiring is, is kind of privileged and biased. And so we spend a lot of time breaking down those you know, language and knowledge barriers. And, and that's really exciting because we see real transformation for a lot of people. And, and that feels very empowering. Right, interesting. And you know, uh, you, you say something very interesting about, uh, you know, a lot of, lot of hiring is, uh, especially when it comes to tech is, can be, can be biased and privileged. And, uh, you know, uh, I just reminded me of uh, Eric Pornberg from, uh, from on they talked about how universities have become very privileged and, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of unbundling of university which could happen. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on Lambda School and Y Combinator, which is 
really disrupted the education market using going forward uh, there's going to be a big market for uh, for specific training like like what ovaro or or lambda school is doing um short answer is yes uh i think unbundling is the right phrase um i mean a good way to think about it is the norms that we have, especially in North America, is you go, you spend three, four, five, ten years. In my undergrad degree, took me eight years because I was busy trying to launch businesses. And the problem is, we we set people up. We say, hey, invest all this time, and it's going to set you on a direction. And the reality is, when you're seventeen, when you're eighteen, or if you're revisiting your career, you don't have anywhere near enough information to know what direction your career is taking. And now people change careers, they change roles all the time. And so we really, a good analogy is that old approach to education is kind of like the waterfall method. You know, you do all your education and then you're set up for the process. And the reality is it's more like agile development. You're going to change directions. So you'll need to be able to dip back in, reskill, move to the next step, reskill, move to the next step. And so I think we will see a lot of unbundling. But I think we're also going to see closer alignment in values. So Lambda School, Uvaro, everyone who's pursuing an ISA or has a strong employment component is going to see better incentive alignment with the students. And I think that's a good thing. It's kind of like when software companies move to software as a service, you want to keep the customers happy. I think we're going to see more like that. You know, education is the flip side of employment and you want to keep people engaged and satisfied. So the model has to change Right, right. No, I absolutely agree on that. And when it comes to income share agreements, do you, do you partner with other uh, other companies for to help students, in, you know, finance their education, uh, or you know, is it uh, once they have the internship or job, only then the IC model works with them? Um, it's a great question. It's a really interesting evolving space right now. So, I mean, we do have an income share agreement. Uh, and like a, a lot of others, there's there's a cap on it. You need to have a 30K minimum. It's 24 months, you know, uh, 10%. Uh, so it shares a lot of similarities. Um, not all of our students take advantage of the income share agreement. You know, We also offer upfront payment options, and we also offer a flat rate subscription. Um, I'm a very firm believer that if you're offering an educational product or you're offering a program, people should be buying the value of the program, not buying the payment model. And one of the challenges that I see in the marketplace is that so many training programs are selling the ISA. And that's not good value alignment. That's that's That sets the company up to take advantage of people who are in a vulnerable position. You know, they feel stuck, so they look for something that feels like a lifeline, and that's why they buy into an ISA. Ultimately, like for us, we should be selling, you know, an amazing career in sales. And that's why people should be signing on, not just because of the ISA. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot of post-secondary education institutions roll out ISAs or deferred tuition products, or ultimately it's a financing vehicle. And educational institutions often have endowment funds, they have investors, they have ways to finance the education differently. So I don't think the ISA is a long-term competitive advantage. I think it's a temporary disruption, and then there will be a realignment. Very interesting, um, uh, and I totally agree. You know, the the North Star metric should be the student outcome uh, rather than the, the the financing model. And uh, you know, how, how many batches are you taking in a, in a year, and how many students are there in a batch? Yeah, so uh, 
we're growing really quickly, so those numbers are changing you know, regularly. Right now, we launch a cohort every month. Uh, by the end of the year, we'll be launching two or three a month. Uh, we're just at that tipping point right now. Um, the cap for us in a given class is 60 students in a cohort. Uh, so that'll give you an idea of where we're, we're at. Um, the part that's really interesting, uh, the part that I find so fascinating is we thought it was going to get harder to run larger classes. We really anticipated a linear relationship. What's been so fascinating is how the bigger the classes, the more self-organizing they've been. So we've seen groups running their own extra practice sessions. Um, we have a big competition at the end. And with one of our most recent classes, they got together the night before to show each other their demos and give feedback, even though they're competing against each other. Um, the cohort dynamic works really, really well in sales. It's super interesting to watch. Right. Well, I think some most competitive people out there in the in the sales and uh, business development space. And um, uh, you know, how how many people do you, uh, in in a, in a cohort would graduate and you know move uh, and get internships and other jobs? Uh, do you think most of them do graduate? Yeah, so we run just north of a 70% graduation rate. Uh, the people who uh, who follow the other 30%, it's a combination of things like uh, maybe they find a job right away, so they oh. don't complete the program. Um, the class that started in January, for example, uh, half the class had job offers before they even graduated. Uh, oh. That sets up an interesting interesting challenge for us. Uh, it's like, okay, it's it's good that you got the job. Maybe you shouldn't finish. Uh, it's a fun <laughs> puzzle. Um, yeah. Some people, rightfully, and I, I do like this, uh, they recognize that that career in sales is not what they want. And that's really good. I would much rather somebody not complete the program and get to that realization um, because it is. It's something you've got to really enjoy to really thrive at. Uh, and then, yeah, there's some people who aren't able to meet you know, the time commitment, maybe circumstances change, maybe the time of day, like they're doing shift work and now they're on a new schedule that doesn't work with the timing. Sometimes they need to defer into another cohort. So that those are tougher conversations because usually it means there's a life situation that's, you know, interfering with it. Um, one of the benefits of running a class every month is that you can actually defer into another class. You don't have to wait for the program next year. Uh, and that's a nice thing. Um, you had a good question on the outcomes. Uh, our internships, uh, usually we have about 40% of a class will participate in our residencies, our internships. Uh, it's not a required thing. It's an optional thing. Some people just want to get into the job search. Some people want to validate their work. Um, the part that's most exciting is our employment outcomes. Our, our median time to employment is 17 days from graduation. And our average salary increases to an, uh, 2.2 times. And so those that's helpful because it's like wherever you're coming from, you can see that lift and that's cool. That's so fun. Yeah. yeah. No, I, th I think it's great uh, to look at you know, student outcomes as a main metric. And, um, you know, you, you, you've talked about, you know, founder-led uh, sales to uh, looking at team-led sales. Uh, you know, especially when it comes to smaller SaaS companies, you know, you're looking at the founders le really leading, uh, you know, sales and business development. How how do you transition from, you know, founder-led sales to team-led sales? It's a tough one. It's, uh, we talk a lot about like crossing the chasm and, and a lot of these um, patterns for startups, but that transition from founder-led sales to, to team-led sales 
is a really tough one. Um, one of the challenges I see a lot of founders do, or sorry, one of the challenges, a mistake I see a lot of founders make uh, is failing to realize that the way they sell is by definition different than the way a sales rep will sell. Uh, little things like if you're a founder and you call up a customer, it's like, hey, I'm the founder of this cool company. We're trying to, people love an underdog story. They want you to win. They're like, absolutely. Like they want to give you the money. They want you to buy. But when a sales rep calls up, hey, I'm a sales rep for this early stage company and the product isn't yet have product market fit because we're early. Like, people don't want that person to win. So just the social contract is different. Um, when you're a founder, you speak with enthusiasm and conviction that somebody can't evoke when they have just a job. And so you're selling on passion, whereas a sales rep has to run a process. They need to be meticulous. And it's really easy to overlook how much work it is to translate that knowledge and those feelings into a system or a process. So for that founder, it's things like pulling out of your head, what is your ideal customer? You know, what are those stories that you just know? You know, what are the competitive pressures? What are the things that your sales rep needs to say? And really what that means is you need a bit of sales operations to make sure they have the right tool, a bit of sales enablement to make sure they have the right messaging, a bit of sales coaching to help that rep. And that's hard because a lot of founders, instead of getting all of that, instead of having all of that, they go and they find someone who's willing to join them as a salesperson on a very low salary because they're an early stage company and they don't have a lot of money. Today, I have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash social pilot to get a 14 day free trial. Interesting. And you know, you know how, how should a sales rep focus on uh, customer personas um, so that you know, he can build his, his funnel? Absolutely. The, the big things that we, we always advise people and I'm condensing this to a super small answer. So <laughs> I think there's a lot more behind it that a lot of uh, books and more intelligent sales leaders uh, would convey, but being able to be really specific on the type of company, assuming you're selling business to business, the type of company you're selling to, like we sell to, you know, second tier financial services companies who have a headquarters in New York. Okay. Super specific. And then being really specific about the roles, the people that are involved in the buying process. I don't just mean the person you're going to cold call, but who needs to review the deal? Who needs to do the security review? Um, who actually has to sign the contract, knowing their job and knowing it well enough that you could do an empty calendar, a week schedule and fill in all the blanks. They're gonna be meeting with their team here. They're gonna do a budget review here. They are likely a parent, so they're dropping their kids off at school in the morning. You need to know the persona well enough that you can map out that schedule so you know what they care about. Because their call with you is gonna be one 15 minute block. Everything else is what they care about. Your, your conversation, they don't. And so you really have to deeply understand what that role cares about in their regular day so that you can be relevant. All right. And, uh, uh, you know, how, how should salespeople sell, you know, uh, freemium products and, you know, maybe upsell uh, the, the, the products 
uh, especially when it comes to SaaS companies. Freemium is a really interesting one because um, the glib answer, the easy answer is you go into your CRM, see who's using the free product and call them up to try and get them to spend money. Uh, I mean, that's, that's what it looks like, but that's, that's not actually the, the way the model works. Um, the reality is there's going to be a lot of users whose needs are met on the free solution. That's all they ever need. That's all they ever really want. And that's good. The intent of the model is to get them all talking about the product so that the people who need the paid one hear about it and stumble across it. So as a sales rep, really what you want to be able to do is ideally your product team is helping you see which free users are using the products, uh, using the features that can upgrade you, get you into it. Um, I'll give you a good example with Tribe HR. Um, we started off with a, it was a freemium model, and then we converted it into multiple tiers of paid. And an HR system's complex. There's a lot of features. Yeah. One of the things we found, the one thing that was the biggest indicator that someone would be looking at an upper tier was if they wanted to add their own types of vacation time. I know, such a simple thing. Like we shipped with vacation and sick. And if somebody had a complex enough or a mature enough business that they wanted to add their own, maybe bereavement, maybe volunteer, maybe mental health, they were likely willing to buy. And so for us, we looked for that button, you know, the add a vacation type off was an indicator that, hey, there's a company here with complex enough needs, maybe we could sell to them. Um, with Kite, for us, it was sharing. You know, when someone had a playbook, they built it all out. And once they wanted to share it with their team, that was a big indicator for us. So as a sales rep, finding what are the features that indicate someone's getting enough value, they want to pay for it. Hopefully your product team is notifying you. You've got a feed of all of those. And then you're reaching out. You're not reaching out to say, hey, start paying now. You're reaching out to volunteer more value. Um, there's a great, everyone talks about delighting your customers. Yeah. And they think about, oh, I'll send them free donuts on their birthday. Or, you know, I'll send them a card and... But that's not what delighting is. There's actually real research about what it means to delight customers. And the two things, the two things to delight a customer are first, deliver what you said you were going to do. Okay, that, that's an easy one. Make sure you're selling. But then the second thing is proactively helping them get the most value out of what they bought. So if that sales rep now reaches out and says, hey, I saw you did this. You went to add time off. You went to share the playbook. Did you know you can get more value with X, Y, and Z features you already have, but just that helpful. That is the best way to delight someone. And that is a, such a softball way to open a sales conversation. Yeah, interesting. And uh, do, do you think, uh, you know, AI machine learning can, can do cold calls uh, maybe in future? That's a great question. A lot of sales reps worry about that. They get very, very, very nervous. Um, Short answer is no, like, kind of keeping it pretty simple. Um, and I don't, I don't mean that they're not going to play a role in automating the sales cycle. Um, but what's going to happen is they're going to automate certain calls and certain parts of the process and allow reps to focus on much more robust activities. Uh, so to, to paint a picture, um, everybody, every software company is using a dialer right now. 
It's like I press the button, it starts ringing. You know, if they're not there, I could press another button to leave a voicemail. That's really common. So I don't, I don't have to spend the 30 seconds thinking through a voicemail and maybe tripping on my own tongue. Okay. Well, we'll see things like AI-powered voicemail where, hey, that software has the name of the prospect. It's got my pre-recorded message and we'll use the equivalent of deep fakes to automatically put in, hi, Rohit. Joseph calling, et cetera, et cetera, but it'll be more personalized. And so we'll see first a lot of AI tools simplifying the motions, but not completely replacing the outreach. Uh, we already see the attempts right now and they all look and they all feel so cookie cutter. I'm sure you get them all the time, those LinkedIn outreaches, the cold emails. Uh, and the irony is that they're all trying to sell AI assistance because <laughs> you can see right through it. So uh, not anytime soon, no. But there are cool technologies. I see groups like Conversica, um, like the, the voicemail stuff uh, that I was talking about. But I think it's still going to be many years before anyone's looking at replacing a human role. Instead, we'll just make the humans more efficient. Right, interesting. And, uh, you know, which companies do you think uh, have the best B2B SaaS uh, sales teams or, you know, have really figured out how to onboard, uh, uh, you know, uh, companies? That's, a, that's such a good question. Um, Trying to think about the 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 best way to give a real answer and not not just dodge around it. Um, <laughs> in all honesty, I think some of the best sales teams. Uh, I wouldn't actually point at B two B SaaS companies for for most of them. Um, there are very very few SaaS companies who are mature enough in their life cycle that they really internalize the value of the training and development. Mm -hmm. um, I could, point, I could point to the enablement function at uh, Shopify Plus, uh, at NetSuite. Uh, the, uh, some really good work that LinkedIn has done and Salesforce has done. Um, the reality is they've recognized, uh, to put in context, uh, Battery released some fantastic data about the growth of SaaS. You know, we're yeah. still really early innings. Let's get to 800 billion in the next decade. But if you actually do the math behind that, that means we need a quarter million sales professionals that don't exist yet. So that that's, and our colleges, universities, none of them have sales education. Two, less than 2% have a sales course. And if they have to fill the quarter million, they'll show up 80 years too late. So the real game is not about, do you have a high performing team right now? It's, can you develop a high performing team? And if you talk to the best sales leaders out there, they're not actually pointing at SaaS companies. Who are best at developing sales? They're pointing to companies like Xerox, you know, companies that are known for training, you know, sales professionals. And so, I think there's a lot that we can still learn in terms of building sales talent. Um, the groups that I think are doing some really interesting things uh, on the earlier stage, I would look to companies like HyperComply. They did they're Toronto based, uh, local. Did some really interesting things around the way they they built the team really early. Um, we got to see that from the inside of it because we have a couple of the grads there. Um, Volley is another similar company, again, on the earlier stage. Uh, and then on the, the kind of later, more mature stage, um, I would take a look at Vidyard as a good example. Uh, same thing. They're bringing in a lot of junior talent to really build. Uh, it's kind of like having your own farm team and recognizing that value. So those are the ones that I would really point to. The actual day-to-day -day sales process is becoming pretty consistent. You got your SDRs, your AEs, you got your outbound cadences, you're automating a lot of it. There's so much similarity between companies. 
I think the real differences are on how they think about the next generation of talent. Yeah, interesting. And, and uh, you know, uh, you've been part of uh, three, you know, high growth startups. You know, what is, uh, uh, you know, how, how do you look at scaling startups and, you know, going from one to 10 uh, and, you know, growing the company from there? Um, a lot of the fundamentals are the same things other investors will look at. It's like, how well do they understand the market? You know, are they building a solution to it? You know, they have the right leaders. So I share that because that's all a given. You have to look at those things. Um, one of the things that I really try to look at when I think about assessing growth in the opportunities is how good are the founders at deputizing the rest of their team to spread the culture and the values? Does the company build its culture and its vibe by just having the CEO at a, at a podium, at a microphone, always spreading the stories and you know building that cult of personality or are they really deputizing their team to do it um, and the reason i focus on that is you can build a company with that cult of personality but it's very fragile you know people make bad choices bad decisions you end up with pockets of different cultures you end up with a lot of conflict internally um, and so that it's like a ticking time bomb whereas when you've got that that strength across the organization, you know, your, your manager in engineering is talking about the values and the company and telling the same stories as a director in sales or the CFO. That's when you've got some really sustainable advantages in the way you spread culture as well. It means that it doesn't rely on the CEO or the founders to be in every interview. Every founder makes a mistake say, Hey, I want to interview everybody. And if you get to 100 people, if you need to be in the interview with everybody, yeah, you're spending all your time hiring. And a lot of people, investors included, they say, hey, we expect our founders, our CEOs to spend half their time hiring. And it's because those founders don't know how to deputize that culture and that vibe and that feel. They should be reserving their time for the most strategic hires, like that CFO or that head of marketing. So that's really what I look to. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, you're also a fellow podcaster or you run a seller's journey podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what is, what, what is the aim behind the podcast and has it, has the content marketing really helped you in getting more leads? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting one. I know you had such a great interview just be, before this about the future of podcasting. Um, yeah. Uh, for us, uh, in all honesty, the seller's journey was not about content marketing for us. Uh, it was about really trying to show what we were seeing. And the reality is anyone can be successful in sales. Like SaaS heads of sales, like they go to the same playbook. They say, hey, let's find that person who recently graduated from college or university and maybe they played team sports. So they're competitive and they know how to get along and they're, they're high energy and they're extroverted and they keep hiring the same people and have the same struggles. What we wanted to do with the seller's journey was highlight the fact that people can, they can be newcomers and get into sales. They could be close to retiring and still succeed in sales. It could be an entrepreneur who flipped to getting into sales. And so we really wanted to highlight the myriad journeys that we see successful salespeople take so that we could help show the people who are coming into our program that you can succeed from any path. You don't have to fit this very stereotypical template. And it's been very helpful in that regard. Because now whenever we talk to somebody, like one of our grads was driving a truck in San Diego. 
you know, before the pandemic started. And then through our program, he had to leave the country. So he moved to another country and is now selling AI tools. And in his first month on the job, he did 400% of quota. They raised his quota by 50% and then he did 300% of quota. <laughs> like he never would have thought his career path was getting into sales, but the seller's journey helped us show more of those stories and it makes it much more accessible. Right, right. Interesting. And, um, you know, just why I, I want to do the top three, what's your favorite business book? That was, uh, I love that question. I, I struggled with it. Uh, thinking about it, I had to pick who. So giving people a really, uh, it's funny, I keep it, this looks so contrived. I actually do keep it on my desk because I refer to it regularly, uh, but it looks like this. Um, really good reference if you're trying to get your team you know, on the same page for how can we systematize and get really scientific about the way we hire, great book to begin that process. So I always end up recommending it. I will put that in the show notes. And, you know, if you could go back in time when you started over, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? Um, I, my team will hate me saying this, but I would have said, I'd go back and tell us to go faster. Uh, we went in with a lot of, um, I think rightfully so, a lot of caution because we're helping people at a very vulnerable point in their life. And we had a lot of belief that our systems would work and that our training would work and the outcomes would be successful, but we deliberately paced ourselves so we could validate it. Uh, and if I could go back, I'd say, yes, it really does work. The numbers do work out. The success is there, just go faster. Yeah. And so instead of starting with 20 people at a time, we would have started with 40, 50, 60, because we get 2,000, 3,000 people a month who reach out to us. And we don't have the capacity to help them all yet. So I'd be telling us to go faster. Interesting. And uh, do you have any favorite online tools, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Um, if I had to go purely by usage, I'd probably say Giphy because we flip a lot of uh, a lot of animated GIFs around uh, in our chat. Um, the one that's helping me most as a leader, though, uh, I'd point to Vidyard. I know I mentioned them earlier, but we use them for a lot of our internal communications. So. Anytime I'm sending a message out to the team, like a new direction, a new strategy, a new activity, uh, I send a video along with it because it's way more powerful than just a message, just an email. Uh, and so, yeah, we use that a lot. All right, we'll put that in the, in the show notes. Uh, Joseph, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about Ovaro? Totally. They can hit our website, uvaro.com, U-V-A-R-O.com. And I'm on most social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, at Joseph Fung. We'll put that in, in the show notes. Uh, Joseph, thank you so much for taking your time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Uh, my pleasure, Rohit. This was great. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.